Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's show, Paul Rickard will look at the big blue chip companies that have reported so far, and we will nut out the ones worth buying more of or dumping. And then I catch up with the CFO of BHP, David Lamont, after a report that has got the market very negative at a time when everyone thought that the big mining was heading in the right direction. We'll see whether this is going to be a buying opportunity for this great Aussie miner. And then next up is Paul Mirren from M Squared Capital, and he's taken what's happening on the property market right now. And then Ying Yi and Cheng from Kulabar Capital on what's the outlook for interest rates. So without any further ado, let's cross to Paul Rickard of The Switzer Report. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thanks, Peter. Let's just cut, cut straight to the chase. CSL, you know, it seemed like a pretty good report to me. The market didn't like it at first, but was up earlier this morning. Yeah, market's done a bit more uh, favour in it, Peter. I mean, I think there are probably two things. First of all, in terms of the last year, it certainly beat expectations. And as we know with CSL, it has a habit of positive surprises. Did that again. It reported... Uh, on a constant currency basis, a profit of two thousand three hundred and seven million US dollars. The market was expecting, well, CSL had guided between two one seven zero and two two six five, so that was definitely a beat. The bit the market didn't like, Peter, initially was in terms of their guidance for next year. Now we're not used to CSL guiding to profit falling, and in fact, that's what they actually did. So their guidance is for profit to fall to uh, between two one five zero and 2250. At a midpoint of 2,200, that's a fall of about 4.6%. So look, some analysts had that in the numbers, some didn't, and I think that was a bit of a surprise. There are a couple of extenuating circumstances. First of all, um, they had such a boomer in influenza uh, vaccines during the last year because of the, the COVID scare and uh, the Northern Hemisphere uh, winter. And so the, 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 profit, the sales growth is unlikely to be repeated there. And secondly, you know, we've been talking about this cost, about the collection of plasma and how much that costs. And it's really a question about margins are sort of under a bit of pressure because costs are going up. When the market looked through that number, I think over the last 24 hours, they actually said, look, that's pretty much as we expected. Sales are still growing. Um, the company's talking about 2022 as being a transitional year, uh, still well set up for the longer term. And despite being pretty pricey, um, where else do you go? So I think that's why we've seen a bit of a recovery in the share price. Okay. Now, this is a company that's been as high as 330, if I'm not mistaken, Paul, and we're around 300 now. So if it, to get to 330 over the next 12 months, there'd be a 10% rise. Do you think a 10% rise is, cap is a, a capable target for CSL? Yeah, look, it is trading on a price earnings multiple of about 44 times. So that sounds expensive, but I can tell you some others out there in the, the same field, Australian companies like Cochlear are about 55 times and, and ResMed's about the same level. It's high by international standards, but um, you know, CSL has continues to grow year in, year out um, and delivers and surprises on the upside. So I think there's, it can be sustained. I think coming back to your comment, can it get to 330 unquestionably? Um, it's actually been a bit of a laggard in the last 12 months, Peter, because at the same time last year, uh, it was trading about $305 and the ASX was about $6,100. Now we're at $7,500 sorry, $7, and we're still around that $300 mark. So it's gone really sideways over the course of the last year when the market as a whole has rallied by about 23%. 
So can it get back to 330? Absolutely. Will it? But I think it's absolutely a core stock for your portfolio. I think uh, you can't go past CSL as being the premier healthcare company in Australia. Could certainly get to 330. I'd be surprised if it outperforms the market, Peter, but um, I perhaps take a little more heart out of the last couple of days and saying the market actually saw the result more as a positive than a negative. Okay. Let's go to Telstra now. It's had a great run up in terms of its share price. Uh, and the report wasn't bad, was it? Look, it was good in the sense that Telstra actually had the first positive earnings growth. Now that, I'm not talking about year on year. It was down um, compared to last year. But the second half uh, of this financial year was up on the first half. And that's actually the first time we've seen Telstra with earnings growth for, I don't know how many years it is, Peter, <laughs> but it must be more than a decade. Um, and I guess the other big positive was that Telstra actually forecast that uh, EBITDA next year would be higher than this year. So this year, we've come in at $6.7 billion. Next year, they're guiding towards between uh, about between seven and $7.3 billion. So that's a big positive. Actually, growth in um, revenues from mobiles. We all talk about how much we all, we all know how much we use our mobile phone. But over the last decade, revenues per user have been actually been falling. Uh, as plans have got more competitive and maybe in the last 12 months we've seen less competition with uh, essentially the four going down to the big three. Um, that's actually allowed Telstra to um, increase revenue per user, forecast profit uh, revenue growth next year and profit growth and the market liked that. I guess the question for Telstra, Peter, is that um, we're now about near $4. I think you and I, when it was in around about $3, said we, we should go back up to about $3.75. We liked it. It's now sort of the top end. Can it really push forward? Um, I think there's heart for, for Telstra like lovers um, from the report. Um, it seems to have turned the corner. Uh, certainly it's not making a lot of noise in the marketplace and that's good. Um, so I guess there's probably a bit more upside in Telstra yet. Yeah, I've, I've just checked out while you were talking, Paul. I wasn't being rude and just checking my emails and, and my Facebook page. I was actually looking at the analysts and uh, they got Telstra up about 6.2% and CSL up 5.2%. And because they're blue chip companies kind of heading in the right direction, it's a, it's a positive to me when analysts still like the outlook for these companies. So that's a, a big tip. Let's get to one that's really struggled for a long time. That's QBE, the insurer. It's had a pretty reasonable report. Is that right? Yeah, it has had a, had a good report. I mean, QBE once was a or $20, $25 company, I forget the number it got to, Peter, we've been down as low as about eight. So it's a, it's a blue chip, uh, was once considered the, one of, the, I guess, the bluest of the blue chip companies in Australia uh, and had a horrible sort of um, several years, partly because it, it had acquired too many insurance businesses offshore and despite all the sort of hype, uh, had really messed up the integration. So it's, it's in, a, in a recovery play. I guess the positive for, for QBE, Peter, was that um, insurance premiums were up. They recorded their best premium growth in some years. And we know there's been a lot of disasters, and, and that's what tends to happen after you get a lot of natural disasters, you know, fires, floods, those type of things. Uh, insurance premiums go up, and they've gone up just as, as, uh, as you'd expect. That's led to profit growth this year and probably a much healthier outlook in terms of what, what the next 12 months is looking like. So... Um, I think the market, the analysts certainly like the result. Um, a lot of buy recommendations, um, expecting QBE to do better. Now, if you if you add in as well, and you think that maybe bond yields could go up because uh, you know, like insurance companies tend to have a big investment portfolios, 
it can actually do really well. So uh, I think there's upside in QBE, Peter, and um, it was certainly been one of the best reports the market's seen. Yeah, Paul, I'm just trying to find its former highest price. Uh, it was as high as $29 right. on this chart. Could have probably even hit 30 And you're right, it was a, a stunning performer in the good old days, but it has had a few uh, interesting developments, even with CE, I think two CEOs had... Uh, problems with inter-office um, 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 inter relationships and things yeah. like that. It's extraordinary performance. But I mean, it, it was actually, Peter, one of our really first global companies. Um, yep. I mean, I take, put BHP and some of the miners to one side, but in terms of a services business, I mean, QBE was, I guess, the leading Australian company in that field for, you know, more than a decade. Yep. And then they had a huge fall from... Uh, from from from, uh, from favour as uh, lots of problems, lots of integration problems, other issues in terms of CEOs. Uh, it was a real real come down. So a lot of traditional QBE shareholders would be a little bit happier by, you know, it's been a bit of a quiet achiever over the last twelve months. A lot more focus on rebuilding and getting things right. And I think uh, you saw the sort of the first reflection of that in this report uh, this week. And the analysts that check these companies out think about 10.6% upside. So I always like a company that's reporting well, plus analysts like it as well. So that's a good sign. Let's go to BHP. This is arguably the best mining company in the world. Um, the CEO's come out with a number of big innovations that he thought would be really good, rolling his energy assets, oil and gas, into Woodside. So he's now potentially more likable by fund managers who have these environmental, social and governance concerns. Um, uh, a lot of other innovations gone into potash in Canada all seem like good things, but the stock market's clobbered the, the company for the last two days. What's behind it, Paul? Well, I think the clobbering is really a function of two things, Peter. First of all, there has been a big fall in commodity prices uh, in the last couple of days. We've seen a much stronger US dollar. That usually means weaker commodity prices uh, when uh, the iron ore price is sort of back to our 160-ish dollars, it was not so long ago it was 220. So that, that's that, that's the first thing, and that's impacted obviously BHP, Rio, Fortescue, and any of the um, companies involved in that space. I think the thing that really um, the other factor, and this is probably the surprise to many, including I guess you and I, and probably BHP, is that the the change in its arrangements in terms of whether we'll have a separate company listed in the UK and as a result, uh, fall out of the FTSE 100 index, that seems to have led to a lot of offshore selling um, because uh, not just yesterday, but this morning, the market opened way down. And uh, I guess that's sellers offshore saying, well, look, um, either we can't hold BHP now because it's not in the FTSE or for whatever reason, uh, we don't need to hold in our portfolios. And I think that might've shocked a few people, including those down at uh, its Melbourne headquarters. Yeah, and so the, the point is this, that. A lot of people don't understand is that when you're in the top 100 index in a country like the UK, Australia, or USA, or whatever, fund managers, particularly exchange traded funds, they have to buy companies in the in the top 100. If it falls out, those compulsory buyers disappear. Yeah, look, we won't probably know for some time just what sort of selling there's been, but it's probably the only way I can explain what's happened because BHP has moved a lot more than say Rio and Fortescue. So you can put you can put the commodity price uh, impact to one point. I think overall the report was okay, Peter. I mean, um, they're not doing a lot apart from repositioning their book. You know, production's okay. Prices are fantastic. 
you know, they're not going crazy on acquisitions. And I think overall that the market thought the the divestment of its of its oil assets was the right step, and also seemed to support um, the investment in the uh, potash in, in in Canada with the Janssen project. Um, so I don't think there was anything. I don't think those other two parts or the result itself is what's caused the fall. This is about people saying, look, this stock's no longer in the FTSE 100 uh, and we can't own it or don't want to own it for whatever reason. How much more of this selling there is, Peter? I don't know, but um, it's certainly come out of left field a bit and must be surprising a couple of people. Okay, so if we also realise that the dividend will be paid soon and when a company goes ex-dividend, the share price drops by usually by the magnitude of the dividend unless mm. some other positive factor comes, comes along. Um, so therefore, this could get to, to as low as forty dollars. But would it be a buying opportunity at forty on your reckoning? Well, I think I think portfolio holders. I don't think the look. Despite the fall in commodity prices, I don't think the, the the tide has yet turned. I might be wrong on that point. So I still think there's reason to be um, long these stocks. Um, yeah, I, I think there's there's value here, Peter. I, th I think it's actually a good move. The the only negative I can see, apart from commodity prices and as I say to everyone, I'm no forecaster of commodity prices, and I haven't met anybody who can yet consistently forecast where the iron ore price is going to go. Um, so I just sort of stay with the stock. But um, the only negative I can see is that um, maybe the, you know, in terms of the divestment of the oil assets back into uh, Woodside, what that means, of course, is that the BHP shareholders are going to get a lot of Woodside shares. Maybe that puts pressure on Woods, the Woodside share price longer term. But for BHP, I've got to think, given the ESG market considerations out there, it's got to be a net positive. Um, the analysts seem to like it, and I think there's probably value in BHP. Okay, Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. David, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. So, David, I know uh, as a CFO, you, you can't explain what the market might do as a reaction to your innovations, but uh, you're down 6% here. You're up in London I know on the, the news, but you're down 6% here. What do you think the market might not be appreciating the value of these changes? Yeah, so Peter, let me just say up front, there was a number of announcements that we made and we fully expect it'll take some time for the market to digest all of those and understand um, the merits of each individual portion. So firstly, let's just start with the operational performance. Very, very strong performance operationally culminating in a record dividend that we've declared, some over uh, $10 billion in this final dividend. When you combine that with the interim dividend, it's over 15 billion US dollars. So if you take today's FX rates, over $20 billion coming to shareholders on the back of our strong operational performance in FY21. Um, certainly what that does do is give us a good platform to look at our future facing aspects. And what we've also announced was obviously the signing off of the Janssen Stage 1 project into Potash. That puts us into a very 
credible area in Canada for potash development. And we see this as a century-long asset that will continue to add value to shareholders over uh, an extended period of time. And equally, what we announced was obviously the merger with Woodside uh, for petroleum. That does create a top 10 independent energy producing company that will be more resilient and be able to actually help with that transition that needs to occur on energy and enable shareholders to access the value that will be attached to that merger, which does have some $400 million worth of synergies. And then finally, we've got the DLC um, unification exercise which will create a simpler and more agile company. So Peter, all of that is a lot to digest. Mm. And so we fully expected that the market will have some volatility. Uh, we need to work that through and continue to e educate the market on the merits of each one of those transactions. Okay, well, you know, the people who, who watch my show, they're investors and they'll be thinking, okay, um, a, a, a part of the business is now going into Woodside. Uh, how, how important was the profits from oil, and that might explain why the share price is down at least a little bit. Well, certainly when you look at the business, the overriding commodity that is impacting that strong operational performance and underpinning the strong dividend was certainly iron ore. Yeah. Um, and, and so from that side of things, there is no change uh, in, in that aspect across the business. And what we would also say is, as we looked forward and looked at the petroleum business, around about a third of our capital expenditure over the next five years would have been going into the petroleum business. So we've set back and actually looked at the portfolio, evaluated the risks that we see in uh, our overall capital investments and have made the choice to give shareholders a choice by putting our petroleum business in with Woodside, creating a more resilient business and people can now elect whether they wish to stay in that commodity and that exposure or move out of it. So for us, we'd say the underlying business is still very robust at, at this stage, focusing on copper, nickel and potash moving forward and continuing to look at our steel products in iron ore and also high-grade metallurgical coal. I'm we see a strong underlying operating performance. I'm assuming you're an accountant and I'm a, a lesser accountant, I'm only an economist, um, but I've, I've roughly worked out that the, the profitability importance of oil for BHP was about 3%. Is that, is that an approximate right well, well, again, what we look at is not just today, but also where do we see things over the medium yeah. to longer term. And it's with that that we've made the decision on the petroleum business, looking at value and risk. Mm -hmm. And we see that, as I said, that it is better for shareholders to move into that merged entity with Woodside, whereby that business is able to actually more be more resilient to the changes that are happening across the globe in relation to decarbonisation. Okay, let's go to potash, because I guess you won't really be selling potash until late uh, 2020s. How, how profitable is that? Is that industry going to be for you, do you think? Look, very profitable. What we did say is that when it's up and running in 2027, that we'll have a 70% EBITDA margin. Um, the, the payback on that investment will be seven years. It will generate an internal rate of return between 12 and 14% for that stage one. Now that's a critical part of it. What that does enable us to do is also get the infrastructure in place that we can leverage with further growth opportunities down the track if we choose to do so. But that potash deposit will be around for a century. 
So this is a long-term investment into an industry that we see has good fundamentals. We'll be in the bottom quartile of the cost curve into a commodity that the world needs moving forward. Okay. Um, a lot of people are in BHP shares for their dividends, which is an unusual thing to say, you know, if you look at like a 10-year or 20-year profile, but that, that's the reality. Do you think any of these changes that you've introduced is going to threaten the dividend? I, I would thought an iron ore price would be a threat to dividends, but that's you can't control that. But you, these changes, do you see them undermining the, the calibre of BHP dividends? Certainly not. We will have no impact on franking as a result of this. So we have um, a long period of franking credits that still will exist across the board, and that doesn't change as a result of this. It's important to also understand that the underlying business in relation to iron ore, metallurgical coal, copper, nickel and potash will be the same. And so we certainly see that, that BHP is committed to having two things, a very strong balance sheet, which helps us be robust through the cycle, and also that we need to reward shareholders. And we will continue to look at that. If you look at the dividend that we paid, as I said earlier, it was 15 billion US dollars for the year, but it brings it to 38 billion US dollars over the last three years. And there should be no change in relation to our dividend policy of, of paying out the excess capital that we have across the company. Okay, uh, one final thing. Um, I've read conflicting reports. One said that you won't be listing on the London Stock Exchange. Others said you will, but you will drop out of the FTSE 100. If that was is the case, if that's true then, would it be likely that some uh, British investors will no longer uh, be forced to invest in BHP? And that could partly explain why the share price has fallen locally? So let's clear up the uncertainty. We will still have a listing in London. We will still have a listing in South Africa and we'll still have a listing in the US as well. But yes, we won't have our primary listing in the UK. So that means we will step out of the FTSE 100. So those that are index related investors will, know, will not benefit from us being in that index moving forward. However, they will still be able to own uh, BHP stock. And our intention is to work with those investors and look to get as many of them as we can across to the limited side of things and enable them to still trade through the London Stock Exchange with that secondary listing. And one final, final question, uh, David. Uh, your outlook on, on iron ore prices, which I think would uh, clearly be a function of your economic outlook for 2022. Uh, are you, are you uh, positive about the economic outlook for 2022 and iron ore? Yes, we are. I, I certainly note that prices for iron ore were 220 not that long ago, and they have come back to about 160 to 165 today. So there has been a reduction there. However, I'll just reference that for FY21, our average realised price was $133 a tonne. So whilst prices have come off from that historical high picture of 220, they are still very robust today at over $160 a tonne. Um, and so our forward projections um, do factor in that we would expect over the, the short, medium and longer term that prices would come back more to the long term average and that's certainly below where they are today. But today at 160, it is still a very important part of our overall portfolio. David Lamont from BSP, thanks very much. Thank you.
the program now is Paul Merrin from M Square Capital. And, I, and Paul recently wrote a piece for his uh, clients with the heading, is property a safe bet? So I'm just gonna put that question to him straight away before we uh, sort of get into the detail of his story. Well, is property a safe bet? Yeah, absolutely, it's a safe bet. Look, if, if uh, in the last 18 months, anything has showed us is that the resilience of the property market. And I, uh, look, the property might, uh, according to a couple of economists as well, property might go up another 10, 15%. And a lot of people is probably sitting at home and thinking, oh, uh, this current lockdown will um, have an impact. Look, it may have an impact. It might slow down that growth and it might be over a longer period of time, but we still see property being very strong. Yeah. Well, one important part of your uh, analysis is reserve bank modeling showing how important interest rates are, interest rate cuts on yeah. property prices. That relationship was uh, quite an interesting one. Yeah, so look, uh, Peter Tulip is the main economist who's done a couple of papers for the Reserve Bank. And one in particular, he tried to address what actually drives property prices. And obviously, interest rates are is the largest key or component to that. But there's other components as well, which are quite important. So in relation to interest rates, a 1% drop in interest rates can carry property prices anywhere between 14% and 28% increase. Mm. Now there's a couple of other interesting elements there as well. Um, the other one is demand and supply. Now demand and supply can be looked at in many different ways. And you being an economist, Peter, the first day at university when you uh, uh, teach uh, students, is looking at demand and supply and how that works. So if you actually have a restriction of supply of property, for example, you're artificially increasing the price. So there, it, there is a very interesting amount of uh, information there, but mm. obviously the current uh, increase in property prices can be really taken down to two things. Low interest rates, because it's become very affordable to buy property, and the fact that we don't have a lot of supply yeah. of property. Yeah. And, and also we've got a new curveball coming along, um, namely the migration effect, yeah. which has been very good for, for property prices in Australia. And, and it's going to be subdued for quite some time, isn't it? Well, look, um, depending on, on what material you're reading, if they open up the borders at the end of the year, mm -hmm. we're going to have uh, approximately half a million of people who permanently lived in Australia coming back and they're going to need to live somewhere. Yeah. The most remarkable thing that, uh, and even taken me by personal surprise, is when we've, in the beginning of COVID, there was an exodus of those temporary people living in Australia. Yeah. Students, tourists, and things such as that. People going home. People going home. And despite that, property, especially, uh, for example, apartments, which, were the, the, which would carry the brunt of that uh, um, element of people leaving, mm. only fell 5%. So when they come back and there's still a shortage of property, what is that going to do to the market? So yeah. that's a that's another unknown as well. Yeah, and, and I guess it's also important to point out that because people can't travel overseas, a, a, a lot of people have been thinking about upgrading their, their property. So that's added demand, but as you say, supply is part of the problem as well. Uh, what are building approvals doing at the moment, mate? Look, the building approvals actually gone on a, on a downward trend. And so one of the interesting parts of Peter Tulips, which is a Reserve Bank's uh, economist, mm -hmm. is looking at future supply. So another paper that he wrote was quite interesting is that the shortage of supply, for example, in Sydney, 
how much is that contributing to the average property price? So for example, a house, I've got the information here. So uh, uh, an average house in Sydney is 73% more expensive because there's not enough houses. Mm. So that's an extra $489,000 per house. What about an apartment? You're paying about $355,000 more, which is 68%. Now in Sydney, it's a higher premium than for example, in Melbourne. Those percentages are 69% against a house versus 73 in Sydney and 20% against an apartment versus 68. So as property prices continue going up, it's going to become, I, I personally think it's going to become a very political question mark in relation to what about affordability? How fair is it uh, that property prices are too high? How can we make it cheaper? And so the only way that you can make it cheaper is keeping the interest rates the same and having a lot more approvals for both houses and units. And you make reference to the fact that Treasurer Frydenberg is actually establishing a parliamentary committee to inquire on housing supply. The revelations from that should be interesting. Well, it should be interesting. And I think the conclusion is already there, but they're going to go through the whole process. Mm -hmm. Look, and I might be wrong. There are other ways to create supply and, and try to create uh, affordability as well. Look, you know, in the Bob Hawke era, there were talks for a, a, a high-speed rail network between Queensland and Melbourne. Now, this is more than 40, 50 years on and we still haven't received it. Now, if they do create a high-speed um, rail network between Sydney, Wollongong, Central Coast and other regional areas, what will that do to property prices? Mm. So, and especially given COVID, will people want to move to those areas because they have still good access to our city, but they can have that lifestyle. Now, land is restricted in Sydney. We can't really go far further past Penrith. Mm. So, what is going to be the solution there? And I think it's going to be medium density in the inner circle of Sydney. Now, one thing you guys do at M Square Capital is that you 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 provide finance to primarily business people, aren't they? And yeah. the business people put up their their real estate, their homes and whatever, or mm. commercial properties that have real value. And then you you will lend say sixty five percent maximum of that value. Yes. Provide a bit of safety for the loans, and then people come along to you and give you money to, to lend to them. And the interest rates to the borrowers are high, but also the interest rates to the the savers are high as well. But in recent times, we've seen um, question marks over the value of apartments. Yeah. Uh, one was because of an exodus of Asian students and and tourists and things like that. So CBD apartments became less valuable, but also there's been question marks over the caliber of building of apartments. Mm. So you as a business, what is your attitude towards apartments as collateral behind some of the loans that you're making? Has it changed? Look, um, it, it, look, it hasn't changed because we've, we've always, look, there's always a risk in relation to high rise apartments, but I welcome a lot of the changes that are happening from a legislative perspective. And I'm not sure if a lot of people are aware from the 1st of July, um, the stringent nature of the legislation in relation to the quality of what you need to do and the monitoring done by the government is a, a lot higher level than it was done previously. Mm. Uh, David Chandler is very vocal, who's a um, building commissioner at the moment. Um, he's very vocal in relation to uh, what's the most delicate way of putting this is actually monitoring very closely of the developers who Putting product to the market. Dodgy developers. This is a bit yeah, of Yeah, okay. The dodgy developers. We are dodgy developers yeah. really are inflicting unbelievable losses on, on unsuspecting consumers who buy their stuff. 
and and it's unfortunate for the one percent who do the wrong thing they spoil it for everyone else so look the the, the construction costs are going to increase but um i think there is a going to be there is a structural change happening with apartments as well so apartments traditionally has been for the obviously student um and the transient individual so mm. what do i mean a transient we still have a, a natural infliction in relation to our perception in relation to apartments is that I'm buying an apartment. It's only going to be temporary. Yeah. Uh, it's temporary until I can, I can save enough money to buy a house. But if you look at Paris, London, other major cities in the world, units are looked at very differently. They're looked at, um, um, there's a, it's as equivalent as livable as a house, mm. but you have the amenity and the proximity where you want to be. So um, I think that there's a big structural change right now happening with apartments, whereas instead of trying to build a two-bedroom apartment being only 75 square meters, which is the minimum ADG design guidelines, which is the design guidelines by done by um, from a state level, people are now building larger two-bedroom apartments. They're building it with studies. They're building with uh, a lot more amenity. They're building it uh, higher luxury, uh, bigger balconies, making sure there's a lot more sunlight. And I think that a lot more people are going to be attracted to that change in lifestyle as well. Um, we, from a demographic perspective, there's a huge amount of empty nesters, for example, um, who are reaching a, a age where their children have left home. They're living in a five-bedroom house. It's hard to upkeep it. And a three-bedroom apartment would be perfect for their lifestyle requirements. Yeah. So I think there's a structural change happening right now. Um, and the perception is going to be changing over the next two, three years. One last thing, um, because of lockdowns, it clearly is putting pressure on the Reserve Bank to make sure that the Australian economy grows strongly out of this. Do you think it actually makes their, their call that they might not raise interest rates to 2024 more believable than it was, say, six months ago? Absolutely. Look, every day that we're in lockdown, there is a lot more damage done to our economy, and it's a wealth effect. Yep. Is that uh, you know, if they if they increase interest rates too early, it's going to make us less confident in relation to our wealth, less likely to spend money. So I think that we're going to have these long-term interest rates or low interest rates for a lot longer than what we originally expected. So the longer this lockdown, it's one of the tools they have to make sure that we come out of it um, strong. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thank you so much, Peter. That's Paul Mirren from N Squared Capital. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, joining me now is Yingyi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital and she's a portfolio there. And that company manages the Switzer Higher Yield Fund as well. And she is our interest rate expert and we all care about interest rates. Tell me this, uh, Yingyi, do you think the, the lockdown and the potential economic implication of the lockdown will actually mean that the Reserve Bank will be on the sidelines for a lot longer than some people were expecting? Well, yeah, that's a very good question, Peter. I mean, look, there, there definitely is a bit of a shot from the latest lockdown. 
Um, however, having said that, um, markets haven't been pricing in, you know, RBA rate hikes for quite some time. You know, obviously, as we've spoken about in the past, they're doing quantitative easing, i.e. they're buying Commonwealth government bonds and state government bonds. Uh, and so we would expect that they taper back on these bond purchases first before they actually start hiking rates in the future. Um, and so, you know, in terms of implications for the RBA, in terms of looking at um, the lockdowns, look, if we do have, you know, um, you know economic sort of activity, um, you know, turning down, which is going to be very likely the case in Q3 and possibly Q4 this year, then it may be the case that they decide to taper back on their, well, I should say delay that taper on mm. their bond purchases, which would then, you know, arguably potentially um, push out, you know, rate hikes into the future. So, you know, we, we think that they don't hike rates in 2022 so our base case even before lockdowns was you know that they probably start think about thinking about hiking rates in late 2023 or possibly 2024 yep. um it may be the case that you know if economic activity doesn't necessarily bounce back as quickly um you know despite you know higher vaccination rates etc that some of those rate hikes could be pushed out but you know it's still a long time yet okay so were you a little bit surprised that this, the Reserve Bank um, stuck to its guns in talking about reducing the taper? Because I think when they first introduced it, you were a bit surprised. I must admit, when I heard, you know, what, the way the economy is going, and like Nav even thinks the June quarter could, be, could have been a small negative, which means that we're in recession now. I think I'd be wrong, but this possibility. I thought this, the central bank would say, well, look, we'll, we'll hold back on reducing our taper, but they didn't. Did that surprise you a little? Yes, that, that did surprise me. Uh, in fact, look, you know, uh, we weren't alone. We thought that maybe they would stick to their guns and sticking with $5 billion a week. Uh, and, you know, in fact, banks like Westpac, you know, Westpac's Bill Evans, who I'm sure you're familiar with, was calling for $6 billion a week. Uh, and, and so, you know, the fact that they stuck to their guns and said, look, we're going to do $4 billion a week starting from September reflected, uh, you know, reflected something that they were, you know, looking at their forecast rather than looking at the data in front of them or what could possibly pan out. So, you know, we were dealing with an RBA, which seemed to be, you know, a glass half full. Um, and in that respect, you know, I, I think, you know, the point that they did emphasise, though, in the August meeting uh, last week was that they said they would be flexible, right? So it could be the case that we get to the September meeting and they say, actually, because of this flexibility and because of the way that the data has panned out, you know, we may not choose to move to $4 billion. That's still a bit of a question mark um, because, you know, we, we're yet to sort of see, we know what the implications could be, um, but obviously, as you know, it takes a bit of time for, you know, job losses to feed into the data. Um, and, you know, when we do get the next set of jobs data, the July um, data, because not everyone was in full proper lockdown um, and people arguably may not have lost their jobs yet, um, that wouldn't necessarily be reflected in the jobs data either. Because even if you work for one week in the month of July, you're still technically considered to be employed. Okay. Let's go to the US now because there they got a very good job number. The bond market got confident again, so yields rose. 
um, and, and, and tech stocks suffer as a consequence. Do, what's your take on the US economy and the bond market over there? Because ultimately what happens in the bond market over there is gonna have an impact on our stock market as well. Um, and I guess if the Fed raises interest rates ahead of schedule, would that put pressure on our central bank to follow suit? All those sorts of questions. Yeah, ultimately, we do believe that, you know, the US will hike rates before Australia does. Um, the US and Australia were in slightly different situations, um, you know, before COVID anyway. The RBA had the issue of, you know, pre-COVID, they actually weren't meeting their inflation and employment objectives, where it was... Whereas, you know, in the US, it was a slightly different story. Um, now, the, the US is obviously bouncing back. There's economic activity. Um, and they're obviously running a very different policy to the way that we're running our country, right? We, you know, um, rightly or wrongly, um, politically sort of speaking, we are, you know, heading towards zero cases. Um, and at least that's how the states are individually running this sort of mandate. Um, whereas in the US, they've focused on, you know, vaccinations um, and rolling out that vaccine. Vaccination. Um, so obviously they're ahead of us in that vaccination sort of program um, and, you know, people can, you know, freely travel. Obviously there's some sort of health restrictions that we are seeing and maybe that does provide some sort of a template for us in the future, um, you know, whether we need to get some sort of vaccination passport or proof that we are vaccinated, uh, et cetera. However, you know, their, their economy is playing out because they are getting that sort of, you know, economic rebound. Um, and so that's probably a template for how we would probably look next year. Um, but until we get our vaccination rates higher, um, it's unlikely that we'll sort of see that. So in terms of the US, yes, you mentioned, you know, would they start hiking rates? Um, and look, you know, the, the central bank over there, the Federal Reserve, have said that they would, you know, taper back. Um, and heading into Jackson Hole, which is, you know, the, the key sort of central bank um, meeting, I suppose, for on the economic policy calendar. Um, it does seem that there's a bit of a, almost like a coordinated effort amongst the central banks to really stick to that sort of, we are going to taper talk. Um, we've seen it from the Bank of England recently. We've seen it from the Federal Reserve and even to a certain extent, you know, the RBA as well last week. So it'll be interesting how that sort of plays out. Um, but, you know, the, the Delta variant, as we know, is very rampant um, and we're seeing, you know, an escalation in cases um, offshore. But to a certain degree, you could argue, you know, the central banks are probably thinking, hey, we've actually done enough. We've been supporting the economy since last year. What more else can we do? Um, so, yeah, that, that's something to bear in mind. But I guess we'll sort of wait and see. One last question, because, you know, yes. we have been, for me, pathetically pessimistic, which I don't like being. <laughs> uh, but let's, get, let's skip into 2022. You kind of imply that, and I think this will happen, mm. vaccination rates are good by December, January. I think it prepares us for a really strong 2022. Is that a fair call? Yeah, I think I'm quite bullish on 2022 as well. So I think you'll get about just purely from economies reopening. So you could have, you know, potential sort of rebasing effects on one hand. But the fact that, you know, there's all this pent up activity 
because businesses just simply can't operate. People can't actually go out. That's going to um, be fully sort of open in 2022. Um, so you probably expect, you know, wages and inflation to sort of, you know, pick up. Um, and that potentially does, um, you know, open the door for the RBA to start raising rates in 2024. Yeah. A hairdresser friend of mine said to me, if these lockdowns don't end soon, we're going to lose half a million uh, of blondes out of Sydney. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen. There's going to be so many people wanting to go to the hairdressers, wanting to go to the oh, restaurants. Oh, for sure. For sure. Stuff, that's going to really be a big economic boom in 2022. And people yeah. should be investing accordingly, I reckon. Uh, Yingyi and Chang, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you so much, Peter. Take care. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget, we have another show on Monday. And if you want more detailed analysis of uh, stocks to invest in or possibly sell, have a look at the Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au. Once again, thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Switzer.